1: So why does it seem everyone in charge today is a narcissistic psychopath? Does power corrupt or is it just that dodgy people are really, really good at weaseling their way into power? And how does our Prime Minister get away with brazenly lying so often? I mean, it's embarrassing for all of us. According to Freedom House, which is an organisation based out of the US, which has tracked global political freedom since 1941, democracy has been on an unprecedented decline, hitting an all-time low this year. Witness capital insurrections and prime ministers lying to other world leaders about submarine deals and, for crying out loud, sexual abuse charges being levelled at, well, pretty much every pocket of power. But today's guest has an explanation and he's possibly one of the best people on the planet to answer the desperate questions so many of us are asking.
0: Sarah Wilson brings you wild ideas for a fired up life.
1: Brian Klass is an internationally leading political scientist, a Washington Post columnist and TV commentator, podcaster, and Professor of Global Politics at University College London. Now, for his latest book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, he interviewed more than 500 of the world's top leaders, presidents, cultists, dictators and war criminals. He drank wine with the daughter of a cannibalistic dictator in Paris, met the worst bioterrorist in American history, took a ski lesson with a man who once ruled Iraq and found some consistent conclusions that can shine light on the disintegration of democracy that we're feeling around us today, right down to why your kid's netball coach is a hell-bent tyrant. I'm going to have to get you to tell the story, one that stands out in the book in particular, of the time you met the daughter of the cannibal. How on earth did that come about?
0: Yeah, so I, there's a guy named John Bedell Bokassa who ruled the Central African Empire, now known as the Central African Republic, in the 1970s. And he was this power crazed monster who effectively, uh, well, at least reportedly, served human flesh to visiting dignitaries uh, during his time in office. And I mean, every aspect of megalomania you can imagine, he fit the bill. He spent, I think it was $25 million on his coronation in a country where the average person was living on a dollar a day. So, you know, all the worst things you can imagine about power wrapped up into one individual. So he had about 50 kids. And what I wanted to- (laughs) Give or take. (laughs) Yeah, well, we don't know for sure because many of them were illegitimate and they were all, you know, sort of hush-hush and so on. But uh, what I wanted to do is I wanted to figure out, you know, the question of- is power-seeking genetic? Are, are power-hungry people inheriting that trait from their parents? So I wanted to go, you know, ideally I would have met the cannibal dictator himself, but he's dead. So instead I met his daughter in in Paris. Um, we sipped a glass of wine together and, and I chatted to her.
1: How fitting. Yeah, and it, well, it was,
0: it was such a strange experience because she's, you know, this person who on the one hand recognizes the monstrous acts that her dad did, but sort of speaks about him with this reverence as well at the same time. Like she has this Stockholm syndrome, believing that he's this sort of larger than life, powerful, to be admired almost figure, and was proud of her last name. And, you know, what What I, I think this story was Indicative of my approach with the book, I was trying to figure out, you know, do you inherit power seeking? And and I looked at first with hyenas and zebrafish and rats and so on to figure out how this works in the animal kingdom, and then I started to think about this from, uh, you know, research. Are there people who have looked into whether genes exist that is power seeking or not? And sure enough, uh, there there are there are leadership genes that psychologists have have isolated that correlate with positions of leadership in the future, and then I also went out and met with people who were uh the offspring of very powerful individuals and sort of trying to triangulate this question of whether power is an inherited uh you know obsession and I think yeah I mean it is it's it's just it's a bit of both it's there's obviously a nature nurture divide going on here but some of it is inherited. And there are some people who are obsessed by power and some who just don't want it at all. And I think that's one of the dilemmas of how we figure out how to get the people who don't want power into positions of authority, because very often they'll be the ones who will wield it with the most justice and compassion.
1: Right. Can I ask before we leave the cannibal? I mean, did the daughter talk about that at all? Did she recognize that her father served up humans to dignitaries at dinner? I mean, how did that come about? Do you have any details about it? I, I sort of almost can't let it go. <laughs> it's too fascinating. He had a
0: very damaged childhood. His parents died at a young age in a very violent way. Uh, he had a terrible upbringing. And I think he was pretty broken uh, to begin with. And he did some things that made an imprint on his offspring too. So in addition to the things like, I mean, he, he basically, he's not only did he serve human flesh, but he served uh, Dissidents to crocodiles that he kept in a pond uh, near the palace, and so on. I mean, when they drained the pond, they found human remains. It was a terrible, terrible thing. But then, when you think about his children, um, like his daughter had a situation at one point where she didn't do something that he had asked her to do properly, and so she burned all of his—he burned all of her clothes in front of her. I mean, you know, you, you can understand that this is going to create some impressions on people if they have these sorts of experiences in their childhood. And, and for her, you know, what she reflected on was, yeah, he was a monster, but he's also my dad.
1: Yeah, well, look, it sort of leads to the central premise of your book, and it's a question, really. Why are so many leaders seemingly such dodgy, awful humans? Is it that they get into power and it corrupts them? Or is it that the system is corrupt and that basically then skews otherwise good people? Or is it a bit of both and and something else?
0: Well, it's all of the above. But the important thing is to diagnose which phenomenon applies to which leader. And the reason I say that is because, you know, if power corrupted somebody, then you want to focus on the system. You want to try to figure out how to make the system not corrupt them. But if they were corrupted to begin with, if they were a rotten person who just needed power to, you know, fulfill some sort of egotistical, megalomaniac desire inside them, well, then you're not going to work on the system because the person's broken. So what I think is important is this diagnosis of which phenomenon is operating for which person. Now, one of the things that I think is really interesting is when I talk to. The you know, general people about the idea of power corrupting. One of the most common psychology studies that people ask me about is the Stanford Prison Experiment, which is Mm. a reasonably well-known study where basically they put college students in prison uniforms and the conventional wisdom is they quickly became monsters and started abusing their fellow inmates who were also college students. And what's really interesting about this is that In 2007, some researchers, in a study that's gotten almost no attention, decided to replicate the advertisement that they used to recruit volunteers for the Stanford Prison Experiment. They just updated the amount of money they were going to pay them for 2007 rather than the 1970s. But other than that, the wording was the same. And then they randomly did another group, another college town, where they had the same wording, although instead of saying, we're recruiting for a study of prison life, they said, we're recruiting for a psychology study. And then they did a personality test on who responded to each of the ads. And what was really interesting was that the prison life ad, the people who responded to that were disproportionately Machiavellian, abusive, narcissistic, megalomaniac, All the things you don't want of someone in power. And the people who responded to the generic ad were more or less normal people. They were sort of representative of the population. And so I think we've misunderstood the real lesson of that experiment is that perhaps when we say, you know, who wants to be a prison guard, the people who volunteer for that, and living in a fake jail and bossing around their fellow classmates, Those people are not normal.
1: Yeah, they're going to be a particular kind of person. So it's almost like it's a job application advertisement issue in many ways. I know that I read in your book um, a sort of a former assistant commissioner of Mm. the Metropolitan Police in London um, was talking about sort of police officers. And she said, if you're a bully, a bigot, or a sexual predator, policing is a really attractive career choice. And I found that frightening. And I'm aware that police officers do in fact commit more domestic violence than the rest of the population. And I think you've made the point somewhere that more so than uh, football players who get a lot of media attention for any kind of violence that happens out there. You compare the American system of police recruitment to the New Zealand um, sort of system. Can you talk a bit about that? Because I think that shows a remedy to this job application issue.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of the areas of the book that I found the most fascinating because, you know, I'm a political scientist. I don't necessarily study policing, but I, I, I talk to a lot of experts about this. And it's not about bashing police officers. I mean, the point is that a lot of good and decent people go into policing. But if you are already a bigot or a bully, the idea of being a bigot or a bully with a badge or in the American context, a gun is appealing. And so you're gonna have a disproportionate Mm. problem. You're gonna have a self-selection of those people trying to become abusive police officers. So what do you do? Well, in the United States, when I was looking at how you recruit officers, I found this amazing video that's unfortunately not as big of an outlier as it should be from a little town called Doraville, Georgia, which is 10,000 people just outside of Atlanta. Now, the video is, it looks like parody to non-Americans. I mean, it starts with the logo of the Punisher, which is a a comic book vigilante who punishes and tortures criminals. And then it has these guys in in literal a tank, right? These police officers in a tank who drive around, throw smoke grenades out, shoot weapons, get back in the tank. There's death metal music on and then the Punisher logo comes back on the screen. And I thought to myself, you know, if you're like a normal person who just wants to be a community service officer, like you're going to run away from that police department, right? This is not where you want to be. Whereas if you're a militaristic, abusive person who wants to shoot people, you know, it's going to be sign me up. So what New Zealand did was they developed a very glitzy, very funny recruitment scheme for the national police with the headline or the tagline of, do you care enough to be a cop? And their video is very funny. It it went viral. Many people have seen it. It's basically, you know, the people depicted in it don't look like your stereotypical cops. First off, it's a lot of women, a lot of ethnic minorities that are underrepresented in the New Zealand police. But then they're also, you know, they're stopping to help an old person cross the road. They're chasing this unseen perpetrator. And at the end, the big reveal is that the perpetrator is a border collie with a purse that's been stolen from someone. I
1: remember seeing it. I remember seeing it. The New Zealanders are fantastic at those kinds yeah. of kinds of ads. But the interesting thing is, is it was all about, are you somebody who cares? As opposed, are you somebody who wants to blow people up?
0: Yeah. And they, they had another video called Hungry Boy, where they had this it was an actor in the end, but it was a boy who looked extremely unwell and hungry uh, walking around, I think it was Wellington and Auckland. And they filmed it. They just didn't, they didn't, they had hidden cameras. And they focused on the people who helped, the people who stopped to help this hungry child. And they said, we want you in the police force right? And the difference is like, between that and the Doraville, Georgia department is is night and day. And so one of the things I'm really hopeful about, I mean, despite the fact that I've met these awful, awful people, some of the worst humans on the planet, I'm a very optimistic person about humanity and, and human nature. And I think we can actually find ways to counteract these tendencies in society because the New Zealand fix wasn't rocket science. It wasn't some, you know, wizardry. It was just they decided to start thinking seriously about which kinds of people respond to certain kinds of advertisements, and they tailored their advertisements to get those people into uniform.
1: And perhaps more simply, it just appealed to our our humanity, which I think we've become um, removed from in current Times. It, it really is quite stark. And I suppose, I mean, I'm really glad to hear that you feel that there's some hope. And we'll get to a few more of those fixes, some of the simple solutions that you put forward in the book. I want to ask the question Am I making it up in my head or have things got worse? I mean, I've followed politics closely for many years. I'm fascinated by it, hence why I was very interested to have you on the show. I've also been watching leaders who kind of come to power under the auspices of shifting things, being a different kind of force, and yet very quickly they they turned things around back to pretty nasty stuff. So in India, you've got Modi, who very quickly switched. Um, I think the same happened in Italy. And Brazil, of course, Brazil being one of the most starkest examples of how a leader came in promising to change things, and then of course became more corrupt than any leader before him. And in Australia... I think politics has shifted dramatically. There's a sense that there's this very binary arguing backwards and forwards going on and um, quite a lot of unkind language happening in Parliament, a lot of bullying and corruption, as well as a lot of sexual violence. And all of this came to a head in the last 12 to 18 months. Is it getting worse or am I making it up?
0: I think there are some things that are definitely getting worse about our politics. I think that there is a a fundamental shift in a lot of countries around the world where we no longer inhabit the same reality as our political opponents, right? We used to disagree on solutions, but we agreed on facts. Now we don't agree on facts. So I think that is much worse. But I think if you think about the broad sweep of human history, one of the things that I found very optimistic, uh, although it's for a depressing reason, is that we actually used to be much, much worse to each other as a species. I mean, if you look at things like how often people end their life by the hand of another human being, how often they're killed by another human, In, in... You know, industrialized rich democracies, it's the lowest ever in human history by a lot. Um, We used to be, you know, before there were sort of the structures of government and the sort of oversight and police forces and legal systems and so on, we used to be pretty similar to our uh, primate cousins. I mean, we actually had uh, pretty similar levels of, of death as chimpanzees, for example, of killing each other. And we're much better than some really awful species to each other like i I have a a, a lemur uh on my mantle in my fireplace this little uh <laughs> and i'm I'm a huge fan of lemurs because I go to Madagascar a lot, but they're uh horrible they kill each other like seventeen percent of lemurs get killed by another lemur so we could be worse anyway the the point is that there's a lot of evidence that we're actually getting better as a species in general, but I think that Compared to say, like the 1990s, the early 2000s, I do think things are worse. So it depends on what frame you use. If you're using the frame of how are we compared to Stone Age, you know, hunter gatherers and killing each other all the time, yeah, I mean, we're doing we're doing uh, better than that. But in the recent times, I think we've turned a corner in a way that's that's much worse for us, and and that's a real problem that we have to grapple with.
1: I'm just wondering why that's happened. Then is it because our sort of primal um, patterns for determining leaders and for dealing with difficult times is hasn't changed and we haven't actually adjusted to these very complex times and a world that is very overpopulated. And so the complexity has just dialed up and we just don't have the capacity to find delicate, humane ways to deal with so much input. Is it a matter of individualism and neoliberalism has has taken over the world to such an extent that some of those moral guardrails, which I mentioned quite a bit in this podcast series, have been removed. And so, you know, things like the church or um, trade unions, perhaps, or, you know, sort of human resources departments in in offices that used to kind of keep things in check and make sure nastiness didn't get too much out of control. Um, And they've been removed, of course, in the last, you know, couple of decades. Is that a factor in all of this. And we also don't really have that much discussion in public places about moral virtues. What do you think has contributed to, you know, this sort of decline in democracy around the world? I know Freedom House has been tracking that since the 1940s. Have you, have you identified some factors in recent history that explain why we're all just shaking our heads in disbelief?
0: Yeah. So, you know, you're right to point to Freedom House. They have um, a a report out every year. And the last 15 years, uh, the world has become more authoritarian every year. So we've got a 15 year uh, slide towards authoritarianism globally, which is a huge disaster uh, for the planet. But I I think there's a few things to isolate. One is there's a breakdown of information flows being good and legitimate. So what I mean by that is sort of what I said in the previous answer, where we don't agree on reality anymore. When you think about the broad sweep of human history, a lot of the technological innovations that have happened have changed how you can spread information from a small group to a large group. So, you know, you used to have a very, very small number of people who had a printing press, and then you had a slightly larger number of people with the radio and TV and so on, and newspapers. But one thing is fundamentally different about the Internet, which is no longer – few to many communication, it's many to many communication, which means some random crackpot can say something that's totally untrue and it can spread around the world in 30 seconds and millions of people might believe it very quickly. And that's warped our, our sense of reality, which makes it easier for politicians to exploit that, right? Now, another thing that politicians have gotten very good at exploiting that I think is part of this this turn that you talk about with Brazil and Bolsonaro and Modi and Duterte in the Philippines and so on, is this strongman mentality. And I think this is where when you said something very important a second ago, you said there's so much complexity that we're all grappling with in the world today. You want a simple answer to a complex world because we don't have the capacity to understand why everything that's changing so quickly is changing in ways that we don't recognize. And we just want somebody to say, I'm gonna fix this for you. Now, the reason that's a problem is because when you look at some a field called evolutionary psychology, they basically argue that our minds have not really evolved. Our brains, the brain structures have not really evolved for the last 50,000, maybe 200,000 years, but our societies have rapidly transformed. I mean, think about how differently we live even than somebody 200 years ago. But 20,000 years ago, following a physically strong male was actually an advantageous way to survive if you were running out of food potentially. So what figures like Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, et cetera, have tapped into is this template that exists in some people in society today, that when a, a crisis emerges, they want a strong man, and you know, the strong man figure is not a coincidental term, to just say, I'm going to fix it for you. And all these studies show that when you prime people and you say, oh, who do you want to lead you? There, By the way, there's a war going on or a crisis or a pandemic. Physically large men do better in that situation and it's ridiculous, but it's also something that exists. And I think that's, you know, one of the first steps to combating is acknowledging that this is a real template in, in some of our minds.
1: So two points from that. Um, I've just got the visual of Putin with no shirt on, on a horse, just to remind us of what a strong man he is. Um, and it has become comedic, hasn't it? Some of these antics. Um, Trump played into a lot of that kind of stuff. I don't know how many times I've seen leaders do that overhand handshake you know, sort of where they almost coming over the top of some other president, um, that strong man sort of stuff. And we actually had a former prime minister here in Australia who used to do this technique called shirt fronting, which is essentially buffing up at a a guy like a baboon, you know, with your chest. Um, Yeah. (laughs) The second (laughs) thing I need to ask then is that is one of the solutions to vote more women in?
0: Yeah, no, it's it's, it's a great question. And so I, I sort of I walk a fine line in the book on this question because there's a lot of evidence that women make exceptional leaders and are less prone to despotism, uh, you know, autocratic behavior, all sorts of things that you don't want in a leader. Uh, the studies seem to show that women are actually better. <laughs> now, the only reason why I sort of add a caveat to that is because. I don't believe in gender essentialism, which is to say that women and men are fundamentally and irreconcilably good at some things and bad at other things. So I think we have to be careful about that. I think it's unequivocally the case that having much greater gender parity in positions of power would be very, very good for society.
1: We're certainly seeing that with climate policy, where there's a female leader, they have some of the strongest climate policy in the world and the most progressive action and um, cohesive action in the country behind climate policy, which is very pertinent right now. The question that um, begs throughout all of this is, of course, we vote our leaders in from small-scale council levels or netball coaches, you know, for our kids' netball team, through to presidents and, and prime ministers. So why do we vote them in? And I remember listening during the Trump era. I remember the US academic um is it Eddie Glaude? He spoke yeah. on it. Yeah, yeah, MSNBC, and it was a really powerful kind of monologue that he gave. But essentially he said about Trump, Trump is us, you know. Uh, he's a reflection of where we are at as a culture
0: yeah I mean, I agree with Eddie. I think that he's right to point to the fact that you you know to be a leader, you have to have followers, so power is relational. you can't lead people unless people are willing to follow you, and that means that any anytime that you have an uncomfortable reality that the leader in charge of you is awful, you have to turn the mirror back on society and think carefully about why that person made it there and so you know to me, this is a question that's about all sorts of aspects of, of our society I mean there's obviously aspects of racism and bias and all the sort of nastiness that you have in modern society but there's also you know things that we can't always explain rationally so one study that I find extremely compelling is a study that asked a bunch of kids to pick the leader to be the captain of their ship and they were shown two different faces. And the kids didn't know that the faces were not random. One of the faces they were shown was the picture of the winner of a French election. And the other face was the runner up in that same election. And when they asked the kids to pick who should be the captain of their ship, overwhelmingly, they picked the winner. And it's totally irrational. When they did it with with, with adults, it was the same thing. They had you know an overwhelming skew towards the person who actually won the election. And so you think about that and you think, you know, we have all these political consultants and messaging experts in politics and so
1: on. And at the end of the day, a lot of people are picking people based on their face. And what are the facial features that um, people choose then if it's so consistent? Yes,
0: yeah, so we, don't, we don't know for sure in general. With that study, they didn't check it. But one thing that we do know is that, and this shows you again the maddening intersection between these cognitive idiotic biases and things like racism is that baby is actually a technical term. So how baby-faced somebody is is something you can measure. And what they've found and this th- these studies just depressed the they, they just depress me to no end, but they're very very well documented. Basically, if you're baby-faced and you're white in the United States, that other white people will view you as weak, and it will hurt your prospects for rising power. And if you're less baby-faced and white, other white people will view you as more strong, masculine, decisive, etc., and it'll help you rise the ladder, rise up on the ladder. If you're black, white people will view you as less of a threat, and therefore it's good to be baby-faced in that situation. But I think the reason I include it in the book, even though it's really uncomfortable to talk about, is because. I think we can go one of two ways. We can either say, okay, let's just pretend these problems don't exist. Let's sweep them under the rug and let's just move on. Or we can say, we've got a lot of really stupid cognitive biases that are affecting the ways we choose our leaders. We need to deliberately counteract them in order to get better people into positions of power. And that's, that's, I think, what the answer is. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST.
1: Now, in Australia, we are going to an election, a federal election. And so these questions are all really pertinent right now. Um, Politically, the country is quite fractured, and I think people are very uncertain about what's going to happen at the next election and very eager to get probably more engaged than they ever have. So the kind of stuff that you're talking about, I think, is really important. What else can we be looking out for, perhaps in terms of behavioural patterns?
0: Yeah, so I have a chapter in the book that talks about the dark triad, which has got, as the name suggests, three characteristics to it. Uh, Machiavellianism, which is sort of the ends justifies the means, Uh, narcissism, obsession with yourself and your own ego, and then psychopathy, being a psychopath. And that cocktail of traits is very, very good at getting power, and those people are obsessed with power. Now, the bad news for the rest of us is that once they get power, they're very bad at wielding it justly. So it's the perfect storm because it creates the situation where these people have the red carpet rolled out for them because they're so, so effective at getting power, and then they just screw the rest of us over <laughs> once they obtain it. And so you know, I think when you see those characteristics of people who are scheming, narcissistic, And seem to be superficially charming, but maybe not all the way there, maybe not totally empathetic. uh, Those are some big warning signs. Mm. And I think, you know, one of the things that we have to be talking about, I think, is if we're going to give control of a country to an individual, why aren't we screening them for these things? I mean, you know, there, there are aspects of society where you can't get a job working with vulnerable people or children unless you've gone through a series of tests or, you know, sort of screening mechanisms. And yet for politicians, we just say, well, if you've been elected, you know, here's, here's the country. And I think we need to think more carefully about how we actually deal with things like training politicians and also we, how we go about uh, screening them more effectively so that voters can make informed decisions.
1: Yeah, right. It's not far removed from my, let's let's ban corruptible people from, from entering power, but it's not a bad idea. I mean, the other behaviours that I see occurring, and um, certainly they've increased over the last couple of years, lying. Politicians now lie. They almost get away with it. Blaming and gaslighting is another sort of lot of behaviours. I know that Trump engaged in that kind of behaviour and our leaders here in Australia do a lot of that as well. Um, But there's this idea sometimes that if you just say it as it is, if you just put the the facts down and say it in an emphatic way, then we almost feel relieved about that. And I'm sure you remember that famous New Yorker cartoon with the sheep in the field and they're eating grass in front of a big sort of political billboard with a picture of a wolf on it. And I think it says something like, I'm going to eat you and with a bunch of you know stars underneath like it's their political slogan. And uh, I think one of the sheep says to the other one, "Well, you know, at least he tells it as it is, as though that's all we want to look for in a leader. <laughs> and I'm seeing that everywhere. We saw that, of course, with the whole Trump era. But there's this sense that if you're emphatic and you talk in black and white language and you ignore all the nuances that are so inherent in pretty much every issue we face today, then we're safe. I mean that sounds like a very primitive response to complexity. Am I right there?
0: You are right. And I think that sometimes humans like to think that we're totally different from from animals and yet there are actually some parallels here in the animal kingdom. One of the ones is with meerkats, where meerkats have this thing called a move call where one of them calls and says, "I think we should move on, there's better food over here or maybe there's some water over here." But the determination of whether the meerkat group actually follows is completely dependent on how confident the meerkat sounds. So overconfidence is rewarded the same way it is in humans. And I think that's something that happens where, you know, again it goes back to that point about complexity. We live in a disorienting era. We live in a time where there's a lot of, you know, really unprecedented things happening and we are responding to somebody who says, "I will fix it for you." Now, you know, The lying, I think, is a, is a slightly different issue, but it's one that's really worrisome because normally the reason why politicians couldn't lie and couldn't get away with lying, I mean, of course, they lie all the time, but why there were sometimes consequences for it is because people would hold them accountable. It's not like politicians would lie and then show themselves at the door. It's that the scandal of lying was enough to destroy a politician. That's not true anymore. I mean, Donald Trump told tens of thousands of lies during his four years in office. It didn't affect his supporters. They didn't care. So I think, you know, again, this is about turning the mirror on our society. It's to say, it's not just that we have a bad supply of politicians. It's that actually some people in our societies are demanding bad politicians and rewarding people because they behave badly. And that's a much deeper problem that I think is not going to be easily solved. But I think it is a profound dilemma that we have to face that some of the people are happy with the politicians who are lying because they don't care about lying. They care about sticking it to the other side. And that's where I think we need to think about politics as problem solving rather than this sort of, you know, wrestling entertainment that it has become in so much of our our societies.
1: Brian, is that because we so desperately need an enemy to feel safe, and so in a world where the enemies are a bit nebulous, you know, whether it's a coronavirus or the climate crisis or wars where you can't really identify the enemy really clearly, like like you used to, we we need to do that sticking to somebody else um, because we we just feel safe only when we have an enemy.
0: I think that's definitely part of it. Yeah. And I think that as humans, we are very, very good at banding together when we believe there's a common threat. But it also, when we believe there's a common threat, it creates a perception that, you know, the other side is illegitimate. And so in democracies, that's a toxic, toxic development. And it's something that political scientists sometimes refer to as polarization, where we're talking about this idea that it's not just it's not just that we disagree, it's that you are evil or you are my enemy, as you put it. And I think that's something that has seeped into many, many Western democracies in a way that's going to be very difficult to counteract. But again, this is where I'm broadly optimistic because I think that we are an enlightened species in the sense that we can figure out the, the solutions to these problems. It's, it's talking about them and saying, you know what,
1: this is irrational. That's nice to know that you're optimistic about it all. I mean, I am too. I am too. Um, we're just going to have to get creative. And I want to get to how we can actually start to vote in nicer people, We structures for ensuring that we get nicer people in there and they don't get corrupted. So non-corruptible people voted into power. But one of the things that you do pick up on as well, I've heard you speak about it in another interview, is how some of these corrupted leaders will delay hard decisions. It's another tactic of theirs that we can all look out for. Can you explain that one? Yeah, sure. So one of the
0: things that uh, corruptible or corrupted people are masterful at doing, particularly if they're a psychopath, is ensuring that all the problems that are hard during the time that they're in power get kicked down the road to the person who's their successor, who they can then blame. And so one of the things that ends up happening is if you're not careful and you don't look out for this, you'll attribute failures to people who are actually are not responsible for them. Uh, Mussolini is the great example of this, because the one thing that people know about Mussolini is that he made the trains run on time. And that's not actually yeah. true. Uh, what actually happened was his, his predecessor in, made some massive investments in the Italian railways. Mussolini made some railways that were sort of vanity projects for these sort of elite in Italy. And a lot of people died during their construction, and the, the mass commuter rail actually was quite late most of the time that he was in power. But he, he manipulated the narrative. So, you know, I think one of the things that, that we have to watch out for is those people who are trying to trick us all the time, uh, because that's one of the, the the hallmarks of a leader who doesn't care about people but cares about themselves. Again, it's back to narcissism, psychopathy, Machiavellianism. Those traits make people very, very good at manipulating stories about themselves and making their followers believe that they're perfect even when they're actually passing massive problems to the people who follow.
1: Yeah, and it's particularly difficult today when there is so much media noise. And if you're the person that's got to show that somebody kicked the can down the road, let's use the example of climate policy, because in Australia that's certainly what's been happening, and then they take credit for any kind of, I don't know, reduction in carbon emissions that might have happened from the previous government, but they choose to take credit for it themselves even though they've done nothing nothing right. It's very hard if you're the person, the opposition, trying to prove that you sound hysterical as you try to break down the complexity of the time frames, um, all the different things that were happening at the same time, and you know, especially when you're talking something like carbon emissions or. I don't know, train timetables, people generally tune out after the first slogan. So it's so difficult if you are in opposition, and let's say the opposition is a nicer version of things, a a less corruptible party, you're really on the back foot. So I'm wondering if there's some techniques that we can look at, you know, that can help us look out for the nice people the less corruptible people, and how we can identify them and then support them further.
0: Yeah, so I think there, there's two issues there. One is this question of how do you get incorruptible people into power, looking out for the nice, decent people. Mm-hmm. The nice, decent people, for the most part, don't try to run for office. <laughs> and the reason is, is that they don't actually the want... job
1: application issue.
0: Yeah, they, they, they don't want power. I always refer to this as sort of the tip of the iceberg problem that we all we all are looking at the tip of the iceberg, which is the people who are currently in politics, and we say, "How can we get you know How can we swap out this person on the tip of the iceberg for that person on the tip of the iceberg?" I think you have to look under the surface of the people who say, "Gosh, I don't want to be a politician. I don't want to have the responsibility. I don't want to have. Uh, I, I don't think I would be the right person to do this. It would be such a burden for me." those are exactly the people we should be trying to get into power, (laughs) the people who don't want to be in power. Now, how to do that is is easier said than done because you have to convince people to do something that they don't want to do. But I think it's it's incumbent on political parties to recruit people who don't put themselves forward because those are going to make the best leaders. Now, when it comes to things like climate emissions, the reason why that happens is because the people who are making those decisions, which often are the people who put themselves forward for positions of power, are more caring, they care more about credit than they do about saving the planet. And I think that's, that's, you know, it, it's an, it's an indication that they're a broken person who shouldn't be empowered to begin with. Most of us wouldn't behave that way. You know, most of us would think, well, you know, who cares who mm. gets the credit as long as we get the emissions down, because that's the, the sort of normal way that most people think about the problem. So I think this skew of self-selection into power is really the problem that we have to tackle.
1: I mean, look, there's so much to take in on all of this. And I am trying to sort of skew it towards people who are listening to this in Australia ahead of our next election, who are trying to look for, I guess, signs of good people, nice people, non-corruptible people who can um, shift the dial on all of this. And one thing that's happening here in Australia is that there's an independence movement. There's uh, So far, there's almost eight or nine independents that have put their hand up reluctantly. So they've emerged from grassroots movements in electorates who've become very dissatisfied with mostly climate policy. That's been the main um, precursor to all of this. And so far they are all women. They are all women who are busy, who have had great careers. They've got children. They're reluctant to have to go to Canberra to represent their area. However, they feel that they they have to do it because nobody else is going to be able to get it done in a particular way. I think one of the other things that you actually do refer to that I think people could probably look out for is we've also got a prime minister who likes to play up the everyday Australian dad vibe. And um, when he actually became prime minister, he he took up a Twitter account and and joined the local football club and became this so-called you know, mad football supporter, which of course hadn't existed beforehand. So he became a mad football supporter and then every Sunday he posted photos of himself cooking a curry on the barbecue. And they were the two things he put himself up for, as well as phraseology like how good is it to be Australian? And it, was, it, it felt very much like a campaign to make him as everyday, you know, Aussie bloke as he could. Are there these tactics we should look out for as well, that idea of kind of rounding off the edges with this everydayness kind of affable guy vibe?
0: Yeah, it's, it's a great question because, you know, one of the things that I think is so difficult about modern politics is that you don't actually know these people. A lot of us have this idea, like when you're encountering somebody in, in your office or in, you know, local politics, you actually get to know someone and you have a reasonable radar for whether they're putting up a sort of fake persona or whether they're genuine. You can't always do that with the prime minister because, you know, you don't get to interact with them on a regular basis. And so you have a disconnect between what's real and what's this sort of facade that sometimes people put forward. I think though, that a lot of us can tell when it's canned. I mean, a lot of us can tell when this is manufactured. I mean, one of the things that I think was, was unbelievably clear about Barack Obama was that he was just totally comfortable in his own skin and was one of these people who you sort of got a sense of the guy regardless of your politics. You sort of understood what kind of person he was. And I think we need to trust that. I think when you feel like somebody is trying too hard to manufacture a certain persona, that's a red flag because people who actually have that persona don't need to manufacture it, right? I mean, I think that's something where politicians are... Are very, very good at creating these brief impressions that unfortunately are not always real. One thing that I think is a great question to ask a politician is what would need to be accomplished for you to say, I don't want to be a politician anymore? If you're running on climate policy, what objective are you trying to obtain? At which point you say, okay. I don't want to be a politician anymore. I've achieved my goal.
1: Mm, okay. And I
0: think that's a, that, that's always an amorphous concept where a lot of the politicians are just in it for the
1: power or for themselves and they don't have objectives. That's a great question for the media to put to politicians because I would imagine if you've got self-interested motives, you probably don't have a good enough answer for that question. You'd probably be very stumped.
0: You'd have deer in the headlights, I think, for a lot of politicians.
1: Yeah. Mm. Now, I just want to sort of finish off with one thing that sort of has intrigued me in all of this is there any shade and to be found in this? Are these torturers and cannibals and war criminals and, and you know, autocrats, are they happy? Do they end up having wonderful lives? Like, do they get to win from this? Or or do they end up sort of, I guess, dying lonely and, and unhappy? Like, what were your observations of the 500 people that you interviewed?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I, I met some, as I said before, some truly awful people and, and I don't Envy them. Um, I, a lot of the time I pity them in a way because they were constantly chasing this thing that could never fulfill them. They were trying to always mm-hmm. get higher up on the hierarchy. and the whole time that they were doing this, they had a target on their back. So you know a lot of the people that I interviewed like when I talked before about the the cannibal dictator's daughter, I mean the cannibal dictator died young. Uh, this is a very, very common trait for people who hit the top echelons of powers. The higher you go, the further you can fall, and I think that is very, very common for the most power-hungry in our societies. I also don't think it makes them happy. You know, I mean, I think that this is something where it's an elusive goal because the goal is always going to be dominance, so you can always get higher on that. You, you're never going to quench that thirst if you're actually one of these power-hungry psychopaths. And, and there's some really interesting evidence that I found, even for the lower level, not, not necessarily the psychopath, but just sort of the, the corrupt kingpin, so to speak, that it actually makes you die younger and age faster. And I think there's a lesson there that actually, you know, serving your community is fulfilling. Seeking power for the sake of it is debilitating and often will lead to you dying much younger. <laughs>
1: So here are a few tangible takeaways I took from our chat. So if you're hiring someone into a position of power, perhaps think about how you word the call out in the recruitment process. Go out with messages around we're looking for people who care. Perhaps also have some kind of guardrail to prevent biases coming into the recruitment or selection process. And just one idea I thought of is deleting the name of the applicant and perhaps even removing any kind of photos from their application form. And I guess you could also add to this, look out for the reluctant but civic-minded woman or person of, you know, a racial minority. The other thing you can do to hold to account somebody who's already in power, and I think this is a really clever hack, is to ask them, what kind of milestone or achievement would you need to see enacted that would then see you step down? And then look for the dumbfounded look on their face as they try to fathom, firstly, the idea of prioritising a policy outcome over their own personal interest, and also the idea of relinquishing power. If it looks really alien to them, then it's probably somebody you don't want, leading your country or your netball team. Finally, vote for an anti-corruption commission. And perhaps, and this is probably a bit extreme, but let's throw around the idea of a screening process for political leaders that actually screens for dodginess, like the process we have for screening for people who work with children. Anyway, lots to think about. And uh, until next episode, stay wild.